following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Good morning. Before we begin, let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, you were crushed for our iniquities. You suffered in our place. We desire for you to be lifted up supremely today. For you to be number one and there be no one behind you. Holy Spirit, do that which only you may do and only you can do. Point us to the cross. Take us to the cross. Help us to truly get and own what is in your word. Help us to value supremely what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Lord Jesus, be pleased. Take pleasure in what you see, what you see it both in our actions and in our hearts this morning. Take my little words and make them much more than they deserve, Holy Spirit. Work in our hearts. Change us. Move us. For the glory of our Lord. Amen. The Christian life demands an answer to the question, how did you overcome your idols? That was the call that Pastor Kurt gave us the last time we were in 1 Thessalonians. And I trust that this message has been reverberating in your heart and changing your life since then. If that doesn't sound familiar, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon. Um, he called us to consider the gospel transformation that took place in Thessalonica and then compare it to our own lives. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians after visiting Thessalonica and leaving in order to defend his ministry from being discredited because he knew that if his ministry was discredited, the message would be discredited. The message that brought about this tremendous gospel transformation in the Thessalonians that Pastor Kirk talked about. So right from the beginning of the letter, he reminds them of the power of the gospel in their own lives. And I will begin reading from verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians in the first chapter. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is saying in these verses, if you need to remember what power came to you, just, just look in the mirror. Look at the radical changes wrought in you by the Gospel of God. Through the Gospel of God, God transformed them. Deeply so. Their loves, their faith, 
their values were radically transformed. This is what the gospel does. It causes outsiders to look in at us when we too experience this gospel transformation and say, what is going on? You have God. How do I get that? How can I get what you have? So do you want to see this kind of transformation, I ask you today? I mean, really, not just the Sunday school answer, but do you really want to see that kind of gospel transformation in our family here? Do you want to see it in your family? Do you want to see it in your, in your friends? Do you want to see it in your little cubicle cluster at work? Do you want to see it in your neighbors? Well, Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12, the means that God uses to bring about that transformation. Paul reminds the Thessalonians and of us the patterns that God uses to bring about true gospel transformation. The patterns of gospel proclamation. Or the gospel transformation that, that, that occurs in places like Thessalonica and Cottonwood Heights and Midvale and Sandy and right here. It's the kind of gospel transformation that can occur uh, through the gospel proclamation to the bank teller that you see twice a month, <laughs> to your favorite barista, <laughs> to your own family, even to you. Not only that, but these are the patterns that bring gospel transformation within our gospel communities. The very same gospel proclamation is the same thing that, that causes transformation within us to the person you sit next to in Koinonia to that young man that attends your Bible study on Thursday morning. The proclamation of the Gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. The same thing that we're saved to is what we are sanctified with. The Gospel. It starts with the Gospel. The middle is the Gospel. The end is the Gospel. It is all about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I ask, do you want to see this kind of transformation, this kind of revival here in our church? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us the patterns that he uh, employed before the Thessalonians that brought about this kind of gospel transformation. Well, before we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, we need to revisit just for a few moments what happened in the previous city of Philippi. Paul had been called by God to take the gospel to Macedonia through a vision. And he and his co-workers arrive in Philippi and they meet Lydia. He and his co-workers share the gospel with Lydia, and the gospel enters Europe, down by the river through a conversation with Lydia in Philippi. Think about that for a second. The gospel, for many of us, probably came to you through an unbroken chain starting with Lydia. (laughs) Through the years, person to person, coming up to to Martin Luther, (laughs) into the English language through William Tyndale, from person to person, through the Puritans, crossing the Atlantic, from person to person, all the way up to you and I today. And for many of us, that may very well have begun right there in Philippi with Lydia. Acts 16 records for us that in Philippi, Paul then frees a slave girl uh, who predicts the future. Um, She frees her from an evil spirit. And her owners, who made a a tidy sum from from her, uh, get upset and they throw Paul and Silas into prison. Worse than this, they're stripped down and publicly beaten with rods. Even worse, they were then held in prison by placing uh, stocks on their feet. It was painful and it was shameful. It was shameful because these were punishments that were only allowed for foreigners. 
Paul was a Roman citizen. But what's striking here is the order of events. Later, Paul would experience the very same thing. He would be strung up on the rack to be beaten. And just before the rods came down, he said, do you realize I'm a Roman citizen? (laughs) But this time, he says it after the beating. Why? He allows it to happen anyway. Well, perhaps there's something even more valuable to him than his personal dignity. Maybe even something more valuable to him than avoiding terrible pain in his body. Well, I think we find it in what happens next. That night, we find Paul and Silas doing something utterly foreign to the situation. Sitting in stocks in prison and they sing. (laughs) They sing. We don't know exactly what they sang, but I wonder if one hymn was Psalm 146. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. Well, God being God does just that. He causes an earthquake. Their bonds fall off. The doors open. The jailer and his family believe in God. And the next morning, the magistrates let Paul and Silas go. Not without a few complaints from Paul. (laughs) But they leave Philippi and head down the busy main highway from Philippi to Thessalonica. Much like Salt Lake City, Thessalonica was the main economic hub for a large area of, of that part of the world. It was a relatively new city. Like Salt Lake City, the people of Thessalonica were very religious. And like Salt Lake City, Thessalonica was a hub of many different kinds of people moving in and out with the winds of the economy. And Acts 17 tells us that upon arrival, they teach in the temple and many people believe, all kinds of people. And as more and more people devote themselves to Christ, the Jews get jealous and they drive Paul and his helpers right out of Thessalonica. They move on to Berea and then Paul goes on by himself to Athens where he preaches his famous sermon to the men of the Areopagus. Wherever Paul took the gospel, opposition seemed to follow. Take your pick. He had pseudo-apostles, Judaizers, charlatans, spiritists, Gnostics, merchants, philosophers, and jealous competitors fighting the message wherever he went, all over the place. And it's no different today. I mean, the opposition wears different clothes, but it's still there. It's maybe a little nicer. It's maybe garbed in niceness or social etiquette or social mores that we value in our society. It's the same opposition. So what patterns did Paul and his friends use to demonstrate the gospel in their gospel proclamation? Well, we see that again in verses 1 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians 2, which I will read. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, let's look very briefly at the flow of thought here in these 12 verses. There are four patterns that Paul reminds them of. We're just going to look at the first one today. But there are four patterns that Paul reminds them of. The first in verses 1 through one and 2 was their boldness. They were bold with the gospel. And this is the one that we will look at today. The second in verses 3 through 6 was their integrity. Their integrity. The third in verses 7 through 9 was how they adorned the gospel proclamation with their very life. And the last in verses 12, 10 through 12 describes the nature of their proclamation to believers. That is, that we are to live out of our new identity, our new identity as adopted children of the King. Well, again, we'll only look at the first pattern today, that of boldness in verses 1 and 2. So how are we to become this kind of bold person? I will tell you now that this will not be a pep talk today about becoming bold. Um, if anything, I hope it's a bragging session about our extraordinary God. The message to you and to me today is very simple. Boldness is the everyday result of rightly valuing our extraordinary God. Boldness is the everyday result of rightly valuing our extraordinary God. And when I say rightly value, I mean supremely value. For Paul, it was that which he had in his God that made him so bold. It defined both what he said and how he said it. I had this conversation with my wife this morning. <laughs> not what you say, it's how you say it. <laughs> it's so important. She had that to me, not me to her. <laughs> the danger today would be for you to hear me exhorting you to be bold. And if that's all you hear, then it, something has gone wrong. Because that's not my purpose today. I'm not because I know that if we can increasingly behold and supremely value our extraordinary God, boy, we don't need to talk about boldness. It will be an everyday experience. How can I not be bold? Have you met my God? (laughs) If you knew Him, you'd understand. (laughs) So today I just want to brag about our God so so that boldness would be an everyday lifestyle. And in order for this to be so, we need to remember and supremely value three unshakable truths about our God. Three unshakable truths that are ours in our God. First off, the the protection that we have in Him. Secondly, what we possess in Him. And thirdly, what power we have in Him. Protection, possession, and power. Three realities in our God. So first, we need to remember the supreme value of our protection in our extraordinary God. I appreciate the fact that Paul alludes to to real pain, real suffering, real shame, real moments of fear as he describes their, their experiences. The word for boldness implies the presence of some level of fear. They experienced real wounds, real hurts. They had real moments of of fear. 
But it is a thread throughout all of Scripture that God is strong and close to His children. The king jealously protects his royal children. As he told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? (laughs) For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And it is no coincidence that Jesus says almost the exact same thing after giving the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's important. Everything else springs from this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, get this, he's saying, behold, get this, live here, own it. I am with you always to the end of the age from start to finish. I am with you. The Lord of the universe. (laughs) And even Paul himself was told by the Lord in a vision while in Corinth, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. So to be bold is to simply take God at His word. It is an active concept with a very passive source. A bold Christian rests. He rests in the sovereign protection of his God. It also does not mean that fear and pain go away. They will come to us. The more we preach the gospel, the more they will, actually, for for many of us. But it means exercising the faith that we have and simply saying, He's with me, so I'll go and I'll speak. To put it in the words of a dear friend, we're bulletproof until we're not. (laughs) At the moment we're not, we're with the Father. (laughs) That's the total sovereignty of our good God. We're bulletproof until we're not. If repercussions come our way, you and I can know from 1 Corinthians 10 that God is faithful and He will not let us be tempted or trialed beyond our ability, but with the temptation or trial, He will provide the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. In other words, you can't wander into any situation due to your boldness through which God has not already in advance written the script, the way of escape out of it. He's custom designed it. He has every detail nailed down. In His sovereignty, He is actually more than just in the details. He's written the details. (laughs) And He's written it in goodness and love for His own glory. So the God who called you to Salt Lake City does not do random and He does not drop the ball. (laughs) Are you the only Christian in your office? That's not a mistake. Pray for the opportunity to be bold in an appropriate and respectful way with integrity towards your employer, but with love. Stand on His sovereignty. To stand on His sovereignty means to walk in His sovereignty right into a conversation at lunch with your coworker. He loves to answer those kinds of prayers. Can't uh, can't recount to you all the different times, but I remember it at the bank, I, I, you, you, we had to go into the safe room with another person because you can't be standing there with three times your annual salary in cash and be alone with it, you know, in a, in a closed room. And so, I remember thinking, Lord, I just, would you just give me opportunities? And I, I'm the boss, so Lord, I. I'm struggling with what that's supposed to look like. In fact, I have no idea because I don't want to take advantage of my position. Help. (laughs) That was my prayer. 
and I, I, I can't recount how many times I would go into the vault and just say something, you know, right from an evangelism textbook, something like, how's it going? <laughs> uh, you know, how's the grandmother? You mentioned her last week, you know, what's, what's going on? Counting money. And an opening for the gospel that you could tr- drive a truck through would come up time after time. God loves to answer those prayers. Loves to. Was that bold? I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just resting in my God. So, okay, you, you say I, I'm hearing you, but but how do I how do I pack up what you're saying and, and get it to to lunch with the coworker on Thursday? Because life is busy and I'm forgetful. I get that. I, I'm describing me there. Um, this is why the writer of Hebrews tells us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. He sure is. You better believe it. And you may say, yeah, okay, got it. But this is why in the very next breath, the, the writer says, okay, and, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to fight against our own remaining sinfulness. We need to remind each other of God's bulletproof faithfulness all the time. We need to just be in the habit of this. Reminding each other, encouraging each other of the of the the, the the tremendous sovereign bulletproof faithfulness of our God. This just needs to be falling out of our mouth. We need to get that package to Thursday at lunch, and we do it together. This is a community project. We don't do this alone. We need each other to deliver that package to Thursday at lunch. We must be reminding ourselves of God's sovereignty and His protection over His saints. In Romans 15, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I remember last year visiting uh, Haiti and we did several different, uh, we did a couple different uh, pastors' conferences, but the, the shining moment for me was sitting down with the security guard at the compound where I was staying, and I, I asked him his favorite Bible verse. And I think that's a great question. What's your favorite Bible verse? And he told me John 3.16. And Then we went back to Isaiah 53, the chapter that Sandra was just singing about. And uh, just, just walking through it, talking about how good God is, that was wonderful. Because there were many times when we would just sit there and stop and he would look at me and I would look at him and say, isn't that something? See how he is? And he would look at me and just... Sometimes it, the most glorious thing that we can say when we're talking about God is, mm. <laughs> isn't he good? Isn't he faithful? Yes, he is. We just need to tell each other of the faithfulness and the bulletproof sovereignty of our God. So tomorrow or Tuesday, just just pray. And call somebody up. Just just ask God for an opportunity to, to encourage someone else in His faithfulness for them. Pray for an opening in the conversation and just brag on God. Just remind the other person that God's protection of His children is no less than the power that He used to raise His own Son from the dead. The very same power holds us in His hands. Talk about it. Gossip about God. <laughs> and pray that God will give you opportunities to take just take what you know about him and tell it and when you feel the fear weigh the fear 
in this hand and weigh his protection of you in this hand and see which one's heavier, which one is actually anything, which one is true and abiding and which one is probably full of lies. Take what you know, stand on him, walk in him and tell of him. So first, we must remember his sovereign protection. Secondly, we must remember our supreme possession in our sovereign God. Our supreme possession in our sovereign God. There, there are only three little words in verse 2, but they're so telling. In our God. Paul and the others had boldness in their God because God had taken hold of them. Paul later describes their conduct with the Thessalonians as like a mother with her children or a father with his children. They were just doing what their daddy had done with them. In saving them, God became their father and He took possession of them. But in His taking hold of them, then, then they possessed all that is God and all that is God's. That's the way it is with you and me. Let me explain a little more. Boldness comes when we realize that God owns us in the purest and most wonderful sense. In God owning us, we now possess all that's His. That's the kind of Father He is. Uh, Pastor Steve will be preaching on this next week, but I, I must briefly mention it here. I think he kind of gave me permission this week to do this. But, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians at the end of chapter 3 that all things are yours, whether Paul or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. We have everything in God. Everything. Just let that float out there for a second. Actually, no, let it get here for a second. We have everything. We have God. (laughs) Just the kind of God that He is. The King holds nothing back from His royal children. At the cross, Christ bought us with His very life, but in His buying us, we gained everything. So take this one step further. When we obey the Gospel, when we gain salvation, we're really gaining God Himself. That's the depth and the intimacy of the Gospel. God takes hold of us and we gain God Himself. The Gospel is really the way of getting God. And God is indeed the highest good in the universe. There is nothing close. There is no second place. That is why Paul could say in Philippians 3, after listing all that he had in this world, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's it. You get Christ, you get it all. And all you, all you lose are your debts. So I just pray that each one of us will understand what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. I am only calling us today to properly value what we already possess in God. That's all I'm saying. What do you have in God? I encourage you today in your gospel communities to just brag this afternoon about what you have in your God. Just just, just brag to each other. I give you permission. One-up each other. <laughs> Wait for the other person to finish and then one-up them about what you have in your God. Over your Super Bowl munchies, do it. Go ahead. No one can take away what we have in possessing God. No one can take it away. This includes your identity. 
It's no fun to be uh, treated shamefully. I know what that feels like. When the other person dismisses you as less than human because you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But because we have God and He has us, our identity is found solely there. It is not in the social structures of this world. You can keep going when that person treats you like dirt. You can keep going. Because your earthly, your, your identity is not found in earthly relationships. He has you and you have Him. You are a child of the King, possessing all that He has and all that He is. When shamefully treated, rest. Rest in your identity as possessing the Creator of the universe as your Daddy, your Savior, your friend. That's your God. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And His steadfast love endures forever. You have Him, all of Him. The world, excuse me, sorry, didn't expect to cry. (laughs) The world loves to impose on us what's most valuable. It loves to define that for us. But we can say with Paul, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world will not define what is valuable to me. Christ does. The cross does. So remind yourself and others this week, this afternoon, over the phone, in a note, over coffee, while driving to school, at dinner at home, with your coworkers over lunch, remind yourself and others that to believe in Jesus Christ means to gain the whole world because it means you gain the Creator of the universe as your own possession. And He's got you. Go ahead, boast about it. Boast about what Christ has done and what you possess in your God. Lastly, we must remember our supreme protection, our supreme possession, and we must remember the supreme power in our extraordinary God. Our extreme, our, excuse me, our supreme power. It is extreme, but I meant supreme. In our extraordinary God. Paul reminds us of just whose message is being proclaimed here when he says in verse 2 that it's the gospel of God. It's not our message. It's not us, actually. As much as the message is about us, it's only about what another has brought about in us. But the power for salvation resides not in us, but in Him and in His message. As Paul told the Romans, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Why? For it is the power of God. The Gospel is for salvation to all who will believe. The Gospel of God is so powerful that the most terrible sinner may be transformed from death to life simply by believing. You and I don't have that power. God does through the Gospel. So there's two truths here that I just I think that we all must understand about the Gospel, about the power that resides there. First, when we obey the Gospel, what we really get is God Himself. We've kind of already been saying that. So then, the Gospel is really the offer of God to the world. What I mean is, it's not a set of theological axioms that are best served cold. No, it's introducing a dying world to its Creator God who holds nothing back in His love. So, question. What do you say about someone when you introduce them to someone else? What they do, right? Um, But, what if they've done something extraordinary in the past? Well, then we forget about what they do now and we just step right into their Olympic gold medal or walking on the moon or 
whatever they've done extraordinary in the past. With God, it's both. It's introducing someone else to our extraordinary God and what He has done in the past and what He is doing now and what He will do in the future. So I ask you to consider how this power has been exercised in your own life. Think about that for a second. As the memories come to mind, revel in them. Let them stir up in you the most sincere and authentic praise to Him. Let this praise just well up in you as you consider what He has done in the past. How powerful the Gospel was to transform you. And then go tell somebody else when we're done. But perhaps when I asked that question, nothing came to mind. Years have passed. Perhaps you've come to church, but nothing. No power, only words. No story, no introductions, just the cold recitation of theological facts. I beseech you to consider the possibility that the Creator's wrath still hangs over you. Believe on Jesus Christ. Believe that He stood in your place and took God's wrath upon Himself so that you could be righteous before God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do that, please. Well, the second truth about the power of the Gospel is really the other side of the coin to the first truth. If we are to introduce this extraordinary God to someone else, we better get our facts straight. I'm not saying be a college professor about it. Um, but I am saying there are certain truths that we do need to communicate. Um, hi, Bill. Uh, this is Aaron Rodgers. Um, he's the quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings. Um, and uh, what? Oh, I'm sorry, Green Bay Packers. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's, and that's soccer, right? Football, soccer that's, that you play? Hi, hi, Bill. This is my, his name is also Bill. Bill Gates. Um, Bill is, uh, well, he founded a very famous computer company. Um, it's called Apple Computers. Um, and he's done very, well, I'm so, oh, Microsoft. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, let me ask you, have you ever done that with an acquaintance and God? <laughs> have you ever got the fundamental facts totally screwed up? Or perhaps we're in the book studying, but we never talk about it with each other. We don't really ruminate on the Gospel with each other. In his book, What is the Gospel? Greg Gilbert quotes a well-known Christian artist who was asked in an interview to define what the Gospel is. Perfect moment to share the Gospel, to, to see someone saved who's listening. This is what he said. Quote, What a great question. I guess I'd probably... My instinct is to say that it's Jesus coming, living, dying, and being resurrected, and His inaugurating the already and the not yet of all things being restored to Himself, and that happening by way of Himself, the, the being made right of all things, that process both beginning and being a reality in the lives and hearts of believers, and yet a day coming when it will be more fully realized. But the good news, the Gospel, the speaking of the good news, I would say, is the news of the kingdom coming, the inaugurating of His kingdom coming. That's my instinct. Unquote. I might chuckle at that if it didn't resemble statements that I've made as a younger man. Um, we need to say something. And we need to speak the truth. Because the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not our winsome personalities. We can't... To some degree, there is a, there's a, there, there's a place where we kind of 
There is no kind of getting it right. There are certain facts we need to get straight. We need to get them straight in our own lives. We need to understand them and own them for ourselves. So if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, we need to make sure we're telling the gospel. If we're bold but we miss the gospel, we're like a fireman rushing to a fire with no water. The power is missing. Okay, so if you're thinking, I'm up for boldness, got it. But the actual gospel is where I kind of get hung up. Okay, you're, you're not alone. But I exhort you, I exhort you as one of your elders before the Lord to get this. Get the gospel. Get the gospel in your mind. Get the gospel in your heart. Get it in the details of your life. Get it in your mouth. So how is this done? Well, first, I may suggest study the gospel. <laughs> and what I mean is study Romans. Study the first four chapters of Romans. Study it with a friend. Just grab somebody. Study it together. Or read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Study those together. Think about the very key issues that Paul answers there. They revolve around four things. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. I think that's a great back-of-the-napkin outline when explaining the Gospel to your favorite barista. Read Gilbert's book. It's actually written for Christians. In fact, Marilyn Ayers is going to be listening to what is the Gospel on CD this afternoon instead of instead of watching the Super Bowl because the Cowboys are not playing. So she's already given me permission to say this. Go to Sunnyside Assisted Living and and ask for Marilyn Ayers and listen to what is the gospel with her this afternoon instead of watching the Super Bowl. Why not? I got a lot of room there. It's a beautiful place. Study the gospel. Secondly, talk the gospel. Ask each other questions about it along the way, whatever along the way looks like to you. Refine your understanding of the gospel by speaking of it and asking questions about it. Don't be proud and not ask questions. God loves the questions from a humble heart. And lastly, if I'm about anything as a pastor, I'm about this. So whatever it looks like for me to help you, I, I would love to serve you in that way, for you to get the gospel. For you to get it here and here and here. Whatever that looks like, whether it's me or someone else, we will, we will help you. We will help you. So maybe in your gospel community today or, or, or later on this week, maybe a group of you could just simply do what I've suggested above. Just, just open the Bible to the first chapter of Romans and start reading and start talking. That's it. That's the end of the agenda. <laughs> Study 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. Read it. Talk about it. Pray about it. Rinse and repeat. Um, just keep going. Then study Gilbert's or Carson's or Bridges or Piper's or MacArthur's books or one of the other many good books on the subject. Don't, don't ask anyone for permission. Just do it. Just go do it together. We need to get the Gospel and it is definitely a community project. We need each other. Whatever you do, fight to get the gospel. Fight yourself. Fight your own sinful impulses to just not value it. Fight and get the gospel. Live the gospel and speak the gospel. As you speak it this week, remember your supreme protection in our God. Remember your supreme possession in our God. 
And remember the supreme power that is only found in our God. Well, in a few moments, we will take the Lord's Supper. And before you take part, please consider where you stand with God in His Gospel. Consider your sins. And consider on what basis, ask yourself, on what basis am I doing anything about them? Am I trying to make myself better over here? Justify myself by adding good to the bad? Or am I simply resting upon Jesus? Is it Jesus or is it anything else? Consider where you have been valuing the things of the world over Him and turn from them now. And consider the true value of what you truly possess in God. I trust and I hope that as you do that, your praise during this time of communion will be sweet, will be precious. And that it will be the most natural thing, pleasing to Him as He delights in you. Let's just take a few moments and uh, think about these truths. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.